This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane. We have a, an hour of science for you now. We have some amazing guests coming in. We seem to have a bit of a infection and dirt theme today, but we'll, um, <laughs> we'll, we'll get into that. In the studio with me is Dr. Lauren. Good morning. Good morning. I'm, I'm glad you didn't do a segue to me then. I was waiting for there's an infection problem and Dr. Lauren. Is there something you need to tell us? <laughs> Because it's a really small room. It is a very room. small room, isn't it? No, I'm very healthy. <laughs> yeah, that's good to hear. Good to be here. Yep. Dr. Ailey, good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. How's yeah. it going? I'm, I'm good. You well? Yeah, no, well, well. Although one thing I have learnt from uh, working with soil scientists over the years, never call it dirt. They get angry. Oh, oh really? Yeah. Really? Yeah, I they call it right? dirt. They get angry. It's, it's quite funny, actually. <laughs> is this sort of a connoisseur thing? It's like yeah, the way I chefs think so. I think refer so. to food yeah. and, yeah. Yeah. you know, it's not yeah. a sauce. It's yeah. a, you know, whatever. Yeah. So soil, not dirt. Okay. Good to know. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to be a provocateur. <laughs> if it looks like dirt and smells like dirt and I have to wash it off like dirt, maybe it's dirt. And there could be some soil on the side. Dr. Ray. Dr. Shane. Where have you been? Uh, well, yesterday I had a really fantastic morning. I, uh, I'm, it's the last day of my sabbatical, so I treated myself mm. to walk around the city and I worked for a couple hours in the state library and then I went to the most oh. exciting rolling exhibit there. Yeah, yeah. 40 years of Triple R. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's the, uh, it's the temporary exhibit. It's through January 29th and I walked in and it was just fantastic because there were things I was learning and it, it, it's as much about Triple R and, and music in Melbourne and Australia as it is about the other aspects of the shows that, yeah. that are on. And there were some, I actually saw some pictures of some Triple R hosts. Dr. Shane, don't feel bad. You were crouching in that one. It, it's well, not always a good picture. Well, uh, I just, I, you know, I'm just concerned that there's some there with me when I've got hair. Yeah. And it might give people expectations well, that won't be met. Yeah, actually, because you were crouching down, I'd say you're, you, that's not a good angle for... <laughs> but uh, but one of the coolest things you could do was they had a tablet-driven thing where you could record and then listen to. You could do the station intro for any show, oh, uh, cool. Cool. including Einstein and Kevin. Oh, well, I get some people to do that. I'm sure they can do a better job than us. How cool, how, how, sorry, sorry, how cool is the huge giant radio on the steps mm. as well? I've, I've yeah. had so many yeah, friends yeah. SMS me you know, photos of that. So it's yeah. very yeah. well done, guys. Yeah, unlike the dodgy commercial channels. I mean, Triple R is part of the community. Exactly. Very good. Now, let's get into some science news. Uh, Dr. Lauren, what have you got for us? Yeah, so look, I was um, reading about concrete, actually, and um, climate change and concrete. And it actually was really interesting because the, the production of concrete is one of the biggest issues in terms of greenhouse gases. So it actually, the production processes uh, form 90% of the global CO2 emissions from industrial processes alone. So if you include fossil fuel use, it drops down to about 5% of, of the gases emitted. But obviously, this is a big issue, and we make a lot of concrete. Uh, there's a lot of buildings going up everywhere. Mm. Um, and the issue with it is that carbon dioxide is emitted from the process when the limestone is converted to lime during the process to make the cement. And that process is called calcination. But what I didn't know is that once the cement is actually used and it's out in the environment and it starts to age and weather, it actually starts to absorb carbon dioxide back from the environment. And that process is called carbonation. And so what this paper in, um, is paper published in Nature Geoscience is they were actually looking at how much carbon dioxide is reabsorbed by the cement and they found that it actually reabsorbs up to 43% of the gases that it emitted when it was being made. So that's actually pretty interesting. So you th it's, they were talking about, you know, hmm. when it's um, breaking up and so when the cement's starting to crumble and you know, if a building's knocked down, for example, the surface area has increased and then you get even more uh, absorbed as well. But what they, they the reason that's in 
interesting and important is that they're going to try and use this information into how we actually recycle cement once it's no longer needed. Once we knock down a building, you know, what can we do with that cement so we actually bring back mm. some carbon dioxide? Yeah. Well, you know, actually Melbourne in Australia has mm. been leading in another aspect of concrete around green concrete. Mm. And these are concretes that don't use Portland cement that are actually able to use something called a geopolymer so they don't have that calcination process. Yeah, great. Uh, and so it can reduce 90%. They can still make concretes. In fact, mm. there's pavers. There's a test piece for a bridge somewhere in Victoria. They're building houses out of it. And you, and those, not only, I think, I'm wondering if they can absorb concrete as well because yeah. they cut down about 90% of the formation emissions. Well, that'd be great because mm. then we used to almost be in and a positive net, family. Net positive, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That'd be great. So I just had this great image of a new video with Pauline Hanson where she kind of <laughs> licks, licks a, a bit of concrete pavement and going, I can't, I can't taste any CO2. <laughs> You could say you could drop a block of cement on it. Do do a whole series of these, you know, like like because the the coral one, you know, just I mean, it's just a gorgeous piece of filming. And you know, and and I'm not sure if it's illegal to rip coral coral up and. um, uh, Totally off topic now, but I want to know who advised her on that and and where she to go to that particular area of the reef. Like you know, like surely she must have realised there were other areas. Yeah. You know, yeah, interesting. <laughs> Who anyway. advises her on anything? Yeah. <laughs> That's what I ask. True, true. Um, and but we're going to find that six-year-old and we're going to lock him up. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Ailey, what have you got for us? I'm going to continue with the uh, climate and weather theme, actually. So um, I've got news from the world of tornadoes this mm. week. Oh, it's Tornadoes, cool. yeah, tornadoes are always awesome. Love them. Yeah. Anyway, pretty destructive, though. Um, and in particular, those... Uh, Storms that produce multiple tornadoes. So when we get a big storm, um, you know, sometimes we can get one, but then when we get the ultra big storm, sometimes we can get uh, multiple tornadoes forming over and over and over again. And these are actually the most dangerous types of storms because they're actually responsible for around about 80% of the deaths associated with tornadoes mm. uh, in the United States anyway, which mm. is where they are most prevalent. So news from uh, the the magazine Science this week basically looked at these uh, storms with multiple tornadoes and wanted to see if those big nasty ones were changing. And they actually did that study a little while ago and found that, yeah, in fact, those storms with multiple tornadoes were increasing. So that's not very cool. Mm. But they never quite worked out why. And so that's what this paper this week worked Mm. out why. And basically what they found was that when you get a tornado or a storm that forms a tornado, you kind of need two main ingredients, right? You need uh, something, well, you need energy. And that energy that we, we call it convective available potential energy, CAPE. It's got a great acronym. (laughs) It's basically just heat and moisture, right? That's all it is. And the second uh, ingredient that we need is something called vertical wind shear. So vertical wind Mm. shear, all that is, is just either a change in wind speed or wind direction with height. Usually with these, it's it's wind direction. And the whole point of of needing that is so that these storms can start to rotate, Mm. right? So the storms that form tornadoes tend to be these big rotating, what we call supercells, these big intense thunderstorms. And what uh, was kind of expected, you know, you might automatically start thinking climate change. You know, these these storms are changing. We're getting more of them, um, the ones that cause the multiple tornadoes. But if it was climate change, what we would expect and what climate models tend to tell us is that it's the energy part mm. of the ingredient, the heat and moisture, that would be causing mm. these changes in the yep. big storms. When, in fact, this new paper has found that it's not that component at all. That component hasn't changed. What it is is this wind shear component, what we call helicity. 
So the rotating component, the the wind shear component. And so that's thrown up a whole bunch of other questions because that helicity is not expected to change with climate change. So the question is, is it climate change? Is it just Mm. part of a longer-term natural cycle? Or are the climate models... Do they have something wrong with mm-hmm. them that means we need to, to look into that further to see what's going mm-hmm. on? But the upshot is that uh, these types of storms do seem to be increasing, mm-hmm. particularly the worst ones. So we'll keep an eye out for that and see if the trend continues. So the downside, of course, is that if um, if at some stage the increase in the amount of energy available due to climate change does start to affect yeah. tornadoes, <laughs> double, whammy. Double, double whammy, yeah. And, yeah. And, exactly and that right. might change it again. So yeah, exactly in right. a sense, it's kind of bad luck that the link yeah. wasn't there because yeah, that's right. the link may come up exactly. the question is when exactly and also yeah. can we establish that link between climate change and helicity we just don't know yeah. because sometimes these climate models on on these very small scales on which um you know the the, mm. the tornadoes operate they just they're not able to resolve those mm. processes going on so yeah. yeah a lot more work needed in this area is the, work. is the um the location of the tornadoes changing as well do they look at that um, in terms of this particular spread? this particular study didn't mm. um and as far as i'm aware there's not really any indication that that yeah. Location okay. is changing as much. I mean, you know, you get tornadoes over the world. We we probably had one in Brisbane just a few days yeah, ago. Yeah. In fact, yeah. so yeah, just there were, there were yeah. a few funnel clouds, but that's that's not unusual. We actually get a lot of tornadoes in Australia. Yeah. People just a lot offshore too. Yeah. Well, yeah. in fact, yeah, exactly. Water spouts, and you always hear this term "mini tornado" in the media, which actually mm. drives me insane because there's no such thing as a mini tornado. Oh, a tornado yeah. is a tornado it's is a tornado. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Either touch touchdown or the day. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Well, we'll try and we'll try and kill that term off. Yes, please. please. Yeah, it's not like a cute tornado. No, exactly. It yeah. sounds like this little thing you keep in your pocket. I yeah. wouldn't want to keep although, a tornado although, in my pocket. Although, you know when you walk outside a building sometimes and there's that little swirling pattern? Is that a mini tornado? No, well, see, that's just Can like a dust a devil. That's just a little vortex. It's a dust devil. Completely different process. So you can't call that a mini? Nope. A micro? Nope. <laughs> Do not use the word tornado. Just trying, really trying to piss her off. <laughs> yeah, you are. Watch out. <laughs> Dr. Ray, what do you got? Dr. Shane, so uh, earlier this week I saw an ad on TV. It was about uh, sun exposure and they had a, the ad was really needed. Had a, a guy who was in the sun a lot and they had a little running clock on his arm oh, about yeah, exposure. Right. I thought, yeah. oh, that, that's kind of neat. And it brings to the idea that how do we, how do we know how much exposure to UV we have? Mm. Is it there? I mean, there's actually uh, an Australian sunscreen called Blue Lizard where the bottle changes color because right. it's ah. got a UV dye in it. Okay. So when you should you put sunscreen on? When your bottle changes color, maybe that's a good time. <laughs> to put it on. So, um, so what I saw was a development in what's called epidermal electronics. Oh. And so these are wearable uh, sensors that will sit on your skin kind of like a temporary tattoo. And it's interesting. This is a really neat development out of the University of Illinois which well, I guess they get some sun, but it's a bit more important here, where they've, they've developed what they can make as a, a printable tattoo. And in fact, the, the proof of concept when they had was a butterfly that is uh, color metric and photochromic, So, it, it, but it's quantitative in UVA and UVB. Mm. And, and so there's a lot of engineering. It's less than a fifth of a millimeter thick. They've got different filters in it, though, so they have one part of the patch that just sees UVA, one part that sees UVB. They have different dyes for it. They have a temperature sensor in it. And they can even put a little coil in it to make it an RF tag for a, a Wi-Fi device. Yeah, um, that's very cool. And, and so, but it, they can, you can put it on anywhere on the body or different mm-hmm. ones. And with the RF tags, it's integrated with a, a mobile app that takes a picture of it, but it's quantitative. Mm-hmm. So it works as a dosimeter. So it, it actually, you can wear it and go, well, over the last two weeks, was I really exposed to you? Yeah. How yeah. much? Mm-hmm. To, to maybe start to answer that question because, 
<clears throat> it's kind of clunky to wear those things to say, well, you know, so I'm wearing short sleeve shirts. Is that a big deal? Uh, mm. You know, we wear hats, yeah. but it, it actually lets you maybe answer that a little bit more. And even in Australia, since, you know, we still have pretty high rates of melanoma mm-hmm. and skin yeah, cancer, yeah. it's that type of thing that might make a platform for public engagement pretty mm-hmm. exciting because mm-hmm. you can really start to, instead of that ad where you had the guy with the little digital dial of yeah. how much is on his arm, you could actually, actually start do it. Actually do it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's very cool stuff. Well, uh, as exciting as that is, uh, <coughs> some news came out of the International Union of Pure and Applied Chemistry, one of my favorite organizations, <laughs> uh, this week. Um, and hello there to any members of the, of the union. Of pure and applied chemistry. Um, the four, four of, um, the newest elements have been confirmed into the periodic table. So these have been, you know, zipping around for a while now. You know, people have created them artificially. There's not the sort of stuff you find under your couch. But, um, the big issue, of course, is naming them. Mm. Because, you know, naming things, you know, at some stage, someone named Americanium. I don't know. Mm. It just happened, right? So they've named these four new ones and the names are, uh, Nihonium. At, uh, I think it's number, uh, NH, um, which is number, let me think, of the, where are 113. Did a Japanese yeah. person find that one? Is that uh, it is, it's, no, yeah. it, uh, well, interestingly Nihon. enough, it is actually named, um, in respect for the country. Yeah, that's what I yeah, yeah, absolutely, yep, that's, yeah. that's where the, the name comes from. Um, uh, see if you can get the, get the next one. Mm-hmm. Uh, Moscovium. Ooh, that was a tough one. Think, yeah, think, about, <laughs> yeah, yeah, think about that one for a little while. Um, that's uh, element 115. And then we've got um, Tennessee. Not from no. Tennessee. I was going to say either Tennessee or Tennyson. <clears throat> Oh, well, no. it's, uh, it, it's, it's Tennessee. Uh, yeah. It is Tennessee. Anyway, that, that, um, well, the Oak Ridge National Lab has oh, a reactor. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, and then element 118, um, which is, um, organesson, which uh, you've got, you got to be careful how you pronounce that, folks, cause, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, but that's named after a physicist named Yuri Organesian, who, um, who was the primary sort of in discovering that one. So, so four new elements, new names, so, uh, locked in. One thing about these elements, as a total of existence, if you took all four of those elements, have they existed in nature for more than a second? Probably though? not. Yeah. yeah, they usually are very, very short-lived, but, but they have to exist long enough for them to determine their properties to be mm. able to place on the periodic table. So, but that, that's sometimes, you know, nanoseconds. It's, it's a yeah. very small mm. amount of time, um, which, you know, I'd rather call them something like, you know, you'll never find me him. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, because it's, it's interesting. And look, they do sit neatly in the periodic table, but I've always had an issue with the periodic table because of the old F block, you know, the bit that you put down the bottom. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it doesn't kind of fit in. Yeah. The anthonide and, so, and lanthanide contraction. Yeah, yeah. It just yeah. doesn't. It's like this thing is nice and neat. You have this nice table and then there's, you know, there's 30 odd elements. Well, we're just going to shove these over to the yeah. side because they don't, <laughs> they don't quite fit the mold. So anyway, it's um, they're confirmed. So um, if you've been waiting with bated breath for, for that outcome, it's it's finally here. A long time. Oh, I've been yeah, waiting yeah. a long yeah. time. And thank you, thank you again. I should say, just thank you again to the International <laughs> Union of Pure and Applied Chemistry because um, they, I mean, you know, these guys are working hard. They are really working hard at this stuff. And there was a massive public consultation, and I'm just stunned that these are the names that they came out with. <laughs> you know, where is Boaty McBoatface? Yeah. yeah, no, exactly. Where did that? Where is that name in this list? Ellie so, the element. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. What is going on? Vegemite. Two point element. (laughs) (laughs) Triple.
You are listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3RRR, folks. Now, hopefully, hopefully, on the phone we have Professor Michael Bell, who is a professor of tropical agronomy from the University of Queensland. Michael, can you hear us? Yes, I can. Good morning. Good morning. Now, thanks so much for chatting to us from, from up there. What time is it in Queensland? You're a couple of hours behind, I think. Oh, not that far. <laughs> 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 yeah. All good. Um, now, first of all, there is a, a, a sort of an event coming up here um, for, for nitrogen, a conference. Tell us a bit about what, what's happening there. Uh, this is an international nitrogen symposium, and so we've got uh, leading scientists who are studying various aspects of nitrogen management from all around the world, meeting in Melbourne for the coming week. Okay. That's going to be really interesting. I mean, what are the sort of key highlights there for, for nitrogen? What sort of things do people typically study? What What's of interest? Well, I guess there's a whole lot of things. Nitrogen's probably one of the most important nutrients for um, driving productivity in our agricultural systems. Um, unfortunately, nitrogen can move to places that we would rather wish it didn't. Mm -hmm. uh, and so managing nitrogen so that we get the maximum, um, maximum amount taken up by crops and used beneficially and the minimal amount ending up either in the atmosphere or in our water receiving bodies is, can be a challenge at times. Mm. Now it sounds like a, I mean, it's obviously a very important area. In, in your case, you work specifically with uh, regards to the Great Barrier Reef. So bring us sort of the link there between nitrogen and what's going on with the reef. Well, one of the problems that we've got, the Great Barrier Reef is obviously a huge ecosystem mm. um, stretching about uh, 2,500 kilometres or so along the Queensland coast. And so it is in effect the receiving body for a large area of agricultural production uh, and, uh, and assorted rivers that are draining um, up and down the Queensland coast. So nitrogen loads entering the reef have increased pretty dramatically um, since human development started happening and we're starting to see uh, that has implications for all sorts of things in that marine receiving environment. So um, coral health, um, algal growth, crown of thorn starfish, etc, uh, etc. Et so there's a major program at the moment which is looking at trying to improve our or reduce the loads of nutrients, among other things, uh, entering the Great Barrier Reef Lagoon to improve the health of that ecosystem. Uh, hi, it's, it's Lauren here. Look, I'm um, interested in that. You're saying, obviously, trying to reduce the load that you're putting into the system. Is there any sort of um, other way you can stop the nitrogen getting into the water? Like, do you have any other sort of filtering systems or anything like that? Well, under in natural environments, your coastal wetlands and mangroves and things like that were natural um, natural filtering systems that a lot of the nitrogen that was leaving the land was actually removed and fixed biologically. Mm. Uh, and so obviously coastal development and, and uh, things like that have reduced the amount of that. But also the, the use of nitrogen and the, and the nitrogen coming off these systems, we've cleared landscapes so we have more runoff now than we used to have before. So from our grazing systems that means you've got more uh, nitrogen delivered with sediment um, coming off grazing lands. We're using nitrogen fertilisers and sugar systems mm. 
uh, people are fertilising their lawns. Mm. <laughs> I mean, there is nitrogen coming from a whole lot of sources. Mm. Michael, when when you look at something like the reef and the you know coral health and so forth, how do you go about pulling out the various components of the sorts of damage and onslaught that we're seeing? I mean, I, I can imagine that the nitrogen problem is one part of that, but how do you determine what the impact is specifically of the nitrogen? Can, with, with a lot of difficulty. Okay. <laughs> um, I mean, the, the reality is that that in that reef environment, you've got a whole lot of things going on all at the same time. Um, uh, you've got rising um, sea, rising water temperatures. So mm -hmm. that the recent coral bleaching we've all heard about was predominantly related to a, a set of climatic conditions that resulted in waters that were warmer than than um, would normally be expected, and the bleaching was a result of that. But we've got interactions between, for example, if you have extra nitrogen entering the environment, it would make corals more potentially more susceptible to rising water temperatures, so the damage might be greater. That's an area of, of active research at the moment, but the indications are that those sort of interactions happen. Uh, when you have floods and you have a lot of sediment delivered to the reef, for example, you, that sediment will contain nitrogen, but it also contains perhaps potentially some pesticide residues. It will contain some phosphorus. And just the sediment itself uh, can create a, a, a way of transmitting um, micro, uh, organic matter further out into the reef system to support algal growth. So... I'm not a marine scientist, but I, I look at it from, from our systems. I'm a terrestrial guy, so I look at what what the marine people are grappling with and, and, and think that they've got a pretty hard job trying to sort out the, the interactions between all those things. Mm. Um, let, let's go back to the land for a second. I mean, what what is the, the alternative here? Because obviously... You know, for food production and, and even energy production these days, you know, we're, we're absolutely pummeling the land as hard as we can to get as much out of it as possible. And nitrogen's a big part of that. What, where should we be heading in terms of sort of trying to put us on a better path where we're not going to have this problem? Well, from the reef perspective, there's the two main contributors to nitrogen loads are coming from grazing lands and from the sugar, the sugar industry, both because of the scale of operations involved. Mm. And in the case of sugar, the amount of fertiliser that's used. I guess from a grazing perspective, the, the issue is fairly simple. We've got to reduce the amount of runoff and erosion leaving, leaving grazing lands. And so that's easier said than done when you have droughts and, droughts and flooding rains. As mm. <laughs> hopefully we'll get some flooding rains sooner or later to break the drought. But, um, but maintaining ground cover and, and trying to work on best management practice in that area Rehabilitating gullies um, are all part of the of strategies that can reduce the runoff and the amount of sediment and associated nutrient that reaches the reef. Mm. Do, do we? The, sorry. Sorry, no. Go ahead. I was going to say, in the case of the crop industries, I think it's a matter of focusing on on efficient use of of the nitrogen fertilizer that that is um, underpinning our productivity, and so trying to increase the proportion of nitrogen that's used by the crop. Um, and reducing the proportion that's lost to the environment and remembering that those losses don't always go into the, into the reef lagoon. Some of it goes to the atmosphere through denitrification. So in both cases, it's an inefficient use of um, dollars of fertiliser investment from a grower. So 
trying to improve the use efficiency through fertiliser technology and management practice are, are where the focus is, is currently at. Mm. Michael, you, you'll obviously be giving a, a talk of some type at this upcoming conference. What are you, what are you speaking about? Um, my colleague, British Shafelki from Ames and myself are talking about, uh, I guess, the Nystrand story from, from land to reef. And so um, Brit is a marine scientist who's um, working with, in particular, uh, corals and, and uh, the impact of water quality on, um, and on ecosystem health in the reef. And I'm, look, I'm working um, in the sugar industry trying to look at improved fertiliser technologies to improve, improve water use, uh, nitrogen use efficiency. And a couple of my colleagues in, who've co-authored the papers with us are working on the control of runoff and erosion and, and uh, trying to reduce sediment. So mm. we've got a fair team together and we're trying to cover the complexity of what's going on and, and talk about the potential solutions that people are working on. Sounds great, Michael. Thanks so much for chatting to us today on Triple R and uh, have a good time at the conference and, and good luck with the ongoing work. No worries. Thank you very much. Professor Michael Bell is the Professor of Tropical Agronomy at the University of Queensland in the School of Agriculture and Food Sciences. Three. Triple You're listening to Three Triple R, folks. We're back. We have two guests from the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute, the Immunology Division, actually. Professor Sue Heinzel and Dr. Lynn Corcoran are both in the studio. Now, Sue is also the um, president of the Australian Society for Immunology. Welcome, Miss President. <laughs> Thank you very uh, much. Well. Thanks so much for having us. <laughs> Look, it's great to have you both in. Um, you've, you've had a great uh, publication out uh, just in the last uh, week, I assume, um, published in Nature Immunology around how the immune system, some of the aspects of the immune system we didn't understand before. So I might ask you first to give us a bit of a historical background. How did we think that the immune system, T-cells and so forth, worked in the past? So I guess we, we always knew that, that uh, T and B cells need to get activated to be efficient in infecting and uh, um, in, to fight an infection. Mm. Um, and they uh, do divide and then they have an, an, an army of cells so that they can fight the infection. What we didn't quite understand is, is how this response is actually regulated and the response magnitude is regulated and uh, how the cells actually know when to stop dividing. Okay, yeah. So, so we know they turn on. We don't know how strongly they start doing their job or when they turn off. Yes, that's exactly right, right yes. So, and, and now you've, you've worked both of those things out? Is that the well, outcome? We, we 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 know a lot, or we always knew a lot about uh, the signals the cells receive. What we have looked at is how the cells integrate all those signals, and then that actually controls the response magnitude and tells them how strong the response will be. Okay, and do we find that that response is like different in different parts of the body, or I mean, how do you how do you so that the immune system is such a complex beast? How do you actually sort of isolate? what you're talking about because it seems as though depending on where you look it might be different everywhere is that well the studies fortunate thing about the immune system is lymphocytes can be isolated from the body they're Mm -hmm. they're cells that circulate and they move all through the body looking for trouble and we've done these experiments all in vitro in tissue culture dishes where we can isolate them very purely Mm -hmm. and we can stimulate them with really highly defined signals which mimic the things they would see during an infection products from bacteria signals from other cells and those things can be measured very carefully so we can watch the precise activity of the cells as they respond 
Mm. And now the timing to me is fascinating because presumably depending on the sort of infection you get or how your body's going in terms of its combating that infection, the timing would be, would be different, wouldn't it? I mean, uh, you know, if it's, if you're setting a clock with these things and saying, okay, you'll run for three days or whatever, is, how is that set? I mean, how does the body determine what that would be for a specific infection? Yeah, that is actually what this study was about. Mm. Um, what, what we found is that uh, each of the cells that then goes on to divide is actually big, being given a time to divide. And the molecule that we found is mainly involved in this setting up this, this clock is a molecule that is um, also involved in cancer. Mm-hmm. It's called MIC, and uh, this is where Lynn has been working on for, for many years. Um, and it, it basically feeds the cell with... Uh, um, fuel to, or a battery as, as lights, or it's just some power. And once this power runs out, the cells actually can't divide anymore. Right. And each cell has been giving a certain amount of MIC at the start of the infection. And then depending on if there's, if it's a strong infection or if it's a strong signal or if, if a lot of, if a cell gets a lot of signals, then it'll get more of this molecule and then it'll be able to divide for a longer time. Okay. If it only gets a little bit of signal, then it only divides for a short time. Yep. Presumably this means in terms of immunotherapies for, for cancer treatment and so forth, does this mean if we can reset that clock, so say, you know, keep dividing for longer or make more of yourself, does that, is that the advantage we're looking for in those therapies to enable us to fight cancer better with our own immune system? Well, understanding how this is regulated is certainly a way forward to, to look at those therapies. Mm. And um, we... We certainly don't want the cells to go on forever because that might actually cause... In Cancer itself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. Or, or autoimmune diseases, yeah, for yep. example, yep. or whatever else. But uh, understanding how it's regulated will will be able, uh, will us enable to, to sort of maybe control that and, and control this molecule and control the mechanism mm. down the track. Interesting. Yes. Actually, I think you got my question, which was has the implications of this for autoimmune diseases. But you're just understanding how the clock works it's a fair step down the road to understand the implications for how this might affect autoimmune diseases? Well, we, we are actually looking at that too. Um, and so in autoimmune diseases, cells do get activated that usually shouldn't be. Uh, they do um, respond uh, to your own tissue, so they usually get a very, very weak signal. Um, that they do get activated uh, is a sign that something's gone wrong. And if we actually sort of found a way to control these, you know, how these signals are being integrated so this, this doesn't happen might, might be a very good way, but we are a long way away from that. Mm. Yeah, and one of the complications is that MIC uh, is, a, is a very important controller of cell division in many cell types, not just cells of the immune system. So if you interfere with that control, you could have very severe... Cons- an animal that's born without MIC doesn't develop beyond right. a few cells. <laughs> yeah, and so yeah. MIC is terribly important for how cells divide normally. And yeah, it's so a wonderful and important gene. So let's not switch it off. Let's yeah. not switch it off. <laughs> and let's not switch it on t- too much. Too much. Yeah. 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 Now, now um, Lynn, you, you're, you've been sort of dragged back into this. Sentence. I mean, you've been at WeHo, obviously. But, but this, is, this is related to work you did some time ago. It yeah. must be fascinating to find that work finding current relevance decades later. It is a wonderful later. full circle for me. Yeah. I did my PhD at WeHi, as we call it, in the 80s. And at that stage, we were looking at um, the causes of lymphomas, which are malignancies of B and T cells. And it turned out in those days that 
particular region of a chromosome was interrupted and taken away from its normal controls and switched on, a super supercharged in a way. We didn't know what that bit of chromosome was, but eventually, with a, some experiments and, it, and help and advice from the international community, uh, we figured out it was Mick. It's named from a cancer-causing gene on a, on a bird virus called, uh, what is it called? Myelocytosis virus, MYC, M-Y-C, that's mm. its name. And we discovered that if you put it into the supercharged states, lymphocytes will not stop dividing. They will divide forever. And you can imagine the consequences of that. This happens in uh, various means in various cancers. Uh, they've figured out ways of switching on MYC. Mm. Uh, and uh, so that's a problem. Mm. Now, uh, you, you must have seen the amazing shifts between, because some of this work you're doing again now, mm-hmm. uh, the, the instrumentation you would have had back then, you know, the stone knives and bearskins, but, you know, compared to now, I mean, it must be a phenomenal shift in terms of you know, the speed you can do it, the precision, uh, uh, presumably it's all changed. Oh, absolutely amazing. Uh, we A lot of experimental work was done by looking at things through microscopes in those days mm. and you know cloning genes which took forever and doing yeah. sequencing which you, you DNA sequencing which you did maybe 50 or 100 bases at a time whereas now you do the whole the genome whole in a day yeah. for instance mm. uh, so now the tools are absolutely wonderful and allow us to ask very precise questions very quickly mm. so Sue what's next uh, you've had this beautiful publication in Nature Communications what's, what's the next step I mean this is redefining the way we look at the immune system so what What's, what's the next rabbit you're going to pull out of your head on, on this area? Well, we, we do want to pursue this, this work further and because it's not, uh, there's a lot of other things that, that, that are obviously involved in controlling mm. the magnitude or just the immune response. And there's, uh, what we found too is that small changes in just one gene like MIC and small changes in another gene like one that controls how long the cells live. Uh, can actually add up to have a massive effect. So we want to look at other effects of other genes, um, how we can, um, how they affect survival again or the division rate, um, other things that, that control the magnitude and how mm. they maybe add up and, and maybe sort of, uh, down the track find, find more clues how lymphoma, for example, develops, but also just how the immune response reacts and how we can sort of make it better in response to uh, vaccines, for example, infections, cancer, or shut it off, for example, like in the autoimmune yeah. system, so um, to, to look at that further. Sounds like, I mean, it's going to affect a lot of people, so, you know, hopefully this will, will really um, change, be a game changer for everyone. Now, just before I let you go, Lynn, um, the sort of gender aspects in science are very important, and you've been doing a fair bit there. Tell us about that. Well, uh, just like in every industry, uh, women are interested and get into the entry levels at uh, relatively equal levels with males, uh, as in science. People enter as PhD students and work as postdoctoral fellows at about a 50-50 ratio. But in our organization and in just about universally, once they start um, um, leadership roles, we start the women start disappearing. Mm. So where we would have laboratory heads, which is our middle management level, they'd be about 30 Five, 33%. And our leaders, our division heads, they'll be about 11 or 12%. Mm. And this was, uh, this was a big problem. So our current director in 2009, when he took over, Doug Hilton, asked me to um, organize a committee, a gender equi- equity and science committee for our organization. And Terry Speed, another passionate colleague, joined me in that. And we've done a lot of things to try and make it easier for women to hang in there during uh, often what is family 
uh, you know, family mm. time, uh, you know, early thirties. Yep. Um, and so we've, we've made rules about when you can, uh, when you can have meetings, not before and after work. Uh, we've given financial to support to women for their children when they, uh, have need to go to conferences, they can bring a partner, etc., so they can keep their profiles high mm. while they're uh, taking care of their kids. And we are going to build a child care center on our front forecourt starting in the beginning next year for 100 babies of high employees. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. And I know that uh, Doug is reasonably good at driving a bobcat too, although I did think he backed into his own fence at one point. <laughs> um, so you might you know, get him involved in the actual construction of, of that facility. But look, it's great to hear, and I think WeHi is, is regarded by many uh, around around Parkville and other areas as as a bit of a beacon of, of how some of these things can work and can be effective. So thank you both for coming in today and chatting to us and, and good luck with the continued work. Thank, thank you, you very much for having us. Professor Sue Huntel and Dr Lynn Concurren, both from the Immunology Division of the Walter and Liza Hall Institute for Medical Research, otherwise known as WeHi. 102.7 In the studio now, we have Rebecca Mitchell. Rebecca is the Land Management Extension Officer in the Department of Economic Development, Jobs, Transport and Resources. It's quite a mouthful with the yeah, government of we, Victoria. We can say agriculture Victoria now. So. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. You, do, you do it all. Yeah. Um, now, it is ver- now I, I, I got in trouble from Dr. Ailey before because I referred to soil as dirt. Apparently not dirt. No, no, soil. soil. Yes. Yeah. I'm glad we've got another convert here. <laughs> Soil's not dirt. What's the, what's the difference between soil and dirt? Or is dirt something like that I'll have it on me later? I is think that... it's just the connotation, really. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, but I mean, if you're going to talk about it, that's great. So if you're going to call it dirt, that's fine. Dirt Girl World's doing great things out there for <laughs> yeah. soil. So, But, you know, yeah, probably call it soil. But. Yeah. <laughs> Now, this, it's, so one of the things I found interesting, well, first of all, let's just um, make mention of the fact that um, tomorrow is World Soil Day. That is, is that correct, right? yes. So what's happening for World Soil Day? I mean, people, are, uh, are they covering themselves in soil? It's going to be... <laughs> Mud well, bars all around. Yeah, what, yeah, maybe. What's going on? Yeah, it's, a, it's an international day which is just celebrating soil and creating awareness. So every year... Um, different countries do different things and last year was actually international year of soils so there was a uh, not just one day it was 365 days right. of celebration yeah. so yeah but um tomorrow everyone's doing a bit different things and um i'm secretary for the victorian branch of soil science australia and we're running a photo competition so just getting people to you know get out there look at their gardens look at their farm and just get in the soil and take a photo and you might win a hundred dollar csi or a gift voucher wow and this, the photo obviously has to be soil. Oh yes, yes. <laughs> soil related. Like, and nothing photo. crude, yeah. folks. No, I mean, no, well, no. well, actually, you know, if it's arty and crude, that's okay. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, you can have twenty nude people I've covered in soil. I've seen mud in interesting places. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you know, there's all that body painting these days. Yeah, that's so, you know, There's right. a lot of good stuff you can do if you can get. No, don't encourage this. No, well, I'm just thinking, cult, you know, Doc Lauren. I'm not sure what you're doing, but um, there's all different coloured soils. That's we could do all sorts of body painting. Um, and so, so what else is happening? sort of around Melbourne, Victoria, um, in terms of soil, in addition to the photo um, competition? So for World Soil Day, um, we are encouraging people to have morning teas. So, I mean, this is probably a little bit more of a, you know, sciencey people, but, you know, anyone can have a morning tea and bring a cake. And uh, a few years ago, I made some cupcakes and, you know, put a little bit of crushed up Oreos on top. And, yeah, we're encouraging people just to <laughs> get together and have a discussion about and you, soil. And you told people that was dirt. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I, I was thinking mud cake. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, clever. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, look, that's cool. Now, one of the things I wanted to talk 
talk to you about is the Australian soil in particular, because our soils are, you know, we're, we're not in the Mediterranean here. Our soils are, are different and yes. they're unique. How, how are the soils in Australia unique compared to some of the other con- continents in the world? Yeah, so we're pretty old as a continent here in Australia, mm. and our soils are, are quite old. So that means that they've had many, many, many generations of time to degrade, basically. And so their nutrients are not quite as full as they would be in some of the other more okay. Mediterranean countries where they've had time to rebuild with a lot more um, growth. And so, yeah, we we struggle a little bit with most of our soils in Australia because they're just not quite what they used to be, really. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I always say, you know, both it's both great and it sucks that we're in the middle of a tectonic plate as well. I mean, you know, we don't get that kind of... Uh, Refresh of, of nutrients from sub, subterranean levels, do we? Exactly, I mean, yes, yeah, so, yeah. So what, I mean, what does that mean in terms of our sort of viability as a, as a nation to keep using our soil? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think it means that we, we need to be a lot more, um, cautious about what we take away from the soil. So we've had many, many, many generations of uh, just, I guess, stripping our soils mm. of what nutrients there are. And I think it's a bit of a change going on at the moment and thinking about, okay, well, we need to put stuff back. So a lot of that is about, you know, caring for what we've got, keeping our organic matter growing, covering and protecting our soils so they don't, you know, blow away. We've got a pretty yeah. windy, windy country and especially over summer, if you've got nothing covering your soil, it's just going to blow away. So keep Keeping them covered and just, yeah, thinking about getting more back into the soil and getting it back to what it used to be. So just had this image of me going to my next door neighbour and say, look, mate, um, I've lost a couple of cricket balls and some of my soil. Can I get it? It's <laughs> <laughs> in your backyard. Yeah. <laughs> just, I just run her up with a shovel. You know, yeah. A, yeah, look, mate, that's about two cubic metres. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Ailey. So getting, getting into this, you know, kind of, uh, revitalizing the soil, I suppose. So is that really about what you, you talked about organic matter? So is it really about things like composting and, and, you know, in, in, on large scale with crops kind of, um, you know, putting mulch and things back on the soil or how, how do you do that on a large scale? Yeah, exactly. So a lot of, there's been a lot of trials going along around the place looking at composting and so, you know, is it that we spread it on top? Is that the best use or is there machines that we can build to kind of dig it in deeper and get it, you know, to that root zone where it really needs to, to be to improve the soil structure and to, um, yeah, increase the plant growth. Mm. So that kind of leads into my question as well in terms of, um, what does soils, sorry, soil science Australia, was it? Yes. yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, like, how, what sort of scale do you guys work on? Because obviously it's quite different for me with my veggie garden, yeah. you know, trying to look at my composting as opposed to, you know, the government level and then in terms of the agricultural large scale. So what do you guys try and target? Yeah, so Soil Science Australia is a not-for-profit not organisation. Mm. So it's got, I think, just under a 1,000 soil scientists involved and it's about um, collaborating, I guess, because, you know, we're, we're a big country and we've got a lot going on in terms of research so it's about collaborating all that research that's going on getting the scientists talking and then getting that awareness out there so as an organization there's branches every state has a branch everyone's a little bit bigger and does things a little bit different or some of the smaller and so it's about yeah creating awareness through the soil science knowledge that we're always gaining and learning so mm. there must be a, a real sort of a difficulty with our farmers i mean we you know they're kind of being dragged through i was going to say dragged through the mud, mud. Um, <laughs> But, but, you know, they're they're constantly being pressured to produce more at lower cost. Yes. And at the same time, you know, tomorrow, hey, farmers, it's uh, World Soil Day. You know, you better not wreck the soil. Mm. Uh, I mean, how are we dealing? I mean, how's the government addressing that? Because that's that's something that to me is is a a key issue. And it's not one that we can sort of just, you know, have an each way bet on. 
yeah, I guess, and that's part of, you know, my, my role, my day-to-day role is about getting out there and just talking to farmers about understanding their soils. So every soil's a bit different. I like to think of them kind of as a car and you've got the engine mm. and the engine is the, I guess, the thing that's making that whole production system going. But every car's different. So we kind of need to understand what kind of car we're working with, what kind of engine, how powerful is it, what constraints does it have. And so just having those conversations with the farmers, mm. um, getting them to understand what they've got, therefore how to manage it because they might be managing for a problem they don't actually have or yeah. not not really noticing a problem that they do have which could easily be managed to increase production. So can the farmers sort of contact you guys and say, hey, get some white coats out here. I want to know what sort of soil I've got and what I should be doing. Yeah, exactly. We do a lot of that stuff. We have a lot of events and we go to a lot of um, meetings and just have chats with farmers. But yeah, sometimes I'll get a call that comes through and have a chat with a farmer about what's going on. And so, yeah, we, we, we want people to understand what's going on in their soil yeah. and how they can best look after it. That sounds good. Now, people, uh, if you've got your hashtag uh, pens ready, um, the, uh, the you can enter via Twitter the um, the photo competition, so get your soils on. Um, get your soils on. <laughs> it is hashtag VicWSD, that's World Soil Day Correct. 2016, so that's Vic. WSD 2016, all is one word. Um, so use your imaginations. I mean, Triple R listeners have pretty I'm, wide I'm ranging imaginations. I'm seeing some dirt war paint going on. Sorry, dirt yeah, soil. Nice. Soil. Yeah. Yeah. Not dirt war paint. Yeah. <laughs> and, and just, you know, respect the soil. Talk to your soil. Talk Does to it soil. help like to talk points. to your soil? Yeah. Don't answer that. No. Um, <laughs> There's a lingering respect people have for government, I think, in this country. So, um, you know, we don't want to wreck that. Yeah. Rebecca, thanks so much for, for chatting to us today. And, and good luck with tomorrow and uh, I suppose the promotion of, of the value and importance of um, taking good care of our soils in the coming years. Wonderful. Thanks. So Rebecca Mitchell is the Land Management Extension Officer in the Department of Economic Development, Jobs, Transport and Resources in the Government of Victoria. We're pretty much out of time, unfortunately. Dr Ailey, thanks so much. Thank it's you. hot today. It is hot today. Looking yeah. forward to an afternoon barbecue. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah, yeah and yeah. some soil. Yeah. <laughs> some soil. Yeah. Not soil on the barbecue, though. No, 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 no. Well, that <laughs> could be bad. Doctor Lauren, you're all dressed up. You're going to uh, I some am. Uh, I have a, picnic or something? A, a barbecue. I think everyone oh, in Melbourne is in a barbecue Come today. Yeah. Over yep. thirty, you're out exactly. There. So I'll yeah. go do some talking to the dirt in the park, and you know, try and do my bit. Yeah, Doctor Lauren, folks, stands out a bit today because unlike the rest of us, she's not wearing her pajamas. The rest of us. Once. Yeah, yeah. Well, for once. Um, yes, Dr. Ray, great to have you in. Great Love to have you back. You. Are you, uh, you're, you're still around for the rest of the year? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I am. Yeah, good, good. So. You've been travelling a lot. Yeah, yeah, that's actually done. No, oh, it's all done this year. When you hit that level of frequent flyer that's above your normal one, you're like, oh, too yeah, much, too yeah, much. Yeah, yeah. They, when they look at you like, oh, hi, Ray. <laughs> Before good. you give your passport yeah. over. Yeah, that's not good. Folks, uh, we're going to hand over now to the team uh, from Edith Nair hanging down there at Ceres. Uh, I think Cam, if I know him well, he's already probably got things cooking and he will cook up a storm for you. So until then, uh, have a fabulous Sunday so you can rock on down there from 12 to 4 and hang out with the rest of the Triple R team. We've enjoyed chatting to you and giving you more science. We'll be back to give you more again next week. Have a fabulous weekend and remember, you're listening to the greatest radio station on this planet, Triple R. This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au